Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal too? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farrah Fight. We're going to talk about bankruptcy today. I've dug around in some history materials, Farrah, to learn that this country's first bankruptcy law was passed in 1800 in response to land speculation problems that were especially acute out here on the frontier. That's almost as old as our nation. Yeah. Various laws were passed and repealed at various times in response to various economic conditions, but the federal law passed in 1837 because of a national depression, they called it a panic in those days, led to a big change here in Missouri because that's when Missouri's governor, Thomas Reynolds, in 1842, asked the legislature to pass a law that ended imprisonment for debt. Not because he opposed debtors' prisons especially, but because the new federal law would force debtors to go to federal courts while they were still in prison under the state debtors' prison law. And that only made their situation a whole lot worse. And every state constitution since then has forbidden debtors' prisons in Missouri. And then a Missourian helped write the first modern federal bankruptcy law in 1898. Really? A guy named Jay Torrey. He was a peach farmer from West Plains. He tried to get the state capital moved there after the 1911 fire. But that's a different story for another time. I'm especially proud right now because I'm from West Plains. And I did not know this history. So thank you. uh, You and I will spend some time talking about Jay Torrey. He was quite a guy. Anyway. The 1898 uh, bankruptcy law was the first modern bankruptcy law. That was the first law that allowed troubled companies to go into receivership to negotiate payments to creditors while they reorganized and many were able to continue. The federal bankruptcy law has been modified several times in the century plus since then, since the one that Mr. Torrey helped write. And we have invited a couple of bankruptcy lawyers today to discuss bankruptcy as a current issue and to explain why it is not a get-out-of-jail-free card for a company or an individual in the financial world. One of our guests is Camber Jones, who's with the Spencer Fain Law Firm, which has offices in Kansas City, St. Louis, Springfield, Cape Girardeau, and Jefferson City. Which one are you in, Cam? I'm in the Springfield office. Springfield office, good. She represents both debtors and creditors, although not in the same lawsuit, of course. (laughs) And our second guest is Brent Westbrook, who lives in Troy, but is head of the Westbrook Law Group in St. Charles. He has represented both businesses and consumer interests. Brent once was the youngest and fastest named partner in the largest bankruptcy law firm in Kansas City before moving across the state to be closer to his family. Welcome to our program. Thank Yeah, hi. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Good to be here. Let's start with a basic question. What issue is the one you find the most clients don't understand, whether it's the person in financial trouble or the complaining client? Do they start up asking, can I? uh, Well, (laughs) the most frequently asked question I get is, can I keep my property if I file for bankruptcy? I think that's the most frequent question I get. So in a bankruptcy case, generally, uh, most common cases of Chapter 7, the general idea is you're trading your property to get out of your debt, but we can protect a certain amount of property for them. The laws that control what they can keep are called exemptions, and you have exemptions to protect certain property, and that property can't be taken from you to satisfy your debt. So, so we explain that to clients. They can protect a certain amount of equity in a home, value in a car, retirement accounts, all of those things. Um, but sometimes we have issues where we can't protect everything for them, and we have to develop a strategy with how we're going to deal with that. Is that the same with you? Yeah. So my broad practice right now is more creditor-based. So uh-huh. I have clients coming to me who say, this person owes me money, and they've, they've filed a bankruptcy 
what can I do? How can I collect? Am I out of luck? So I would say the biggest question I do get is, how do I get the most of what I'm owed? You know, mm-hmm. what what methods do I use? What route do I take to get everything I can? Since you've both talked from the different perspectives here, is this an adversarial relationship while you try to work things out? Or how adversarial is it? Maybe I should ask. It depends on the case. It can get very adversarial. Most cases, though, I find aren't adversarial. And most of the you know, attorneys know each other and have a good grasp on the law. So many times you know where the matter's headed um, at the end of the day. And it's funny you ask, you use that word adversarial because the there uh, is a separate court uh, court proceeding within a bankruptcy case where if a matter is disputed, it's actually called an adversary proceeding. So, which is kind of a separate lawsuit within a bankruptcy. Within case. the bankruptcy, and I think one of the great things about bankruptcy is that it's not a zero sum game the way a lot of litigation is. There's not necessarily a winner and a loser. I think all of these parties debtors and creditors are coming together to try to say, how do we work this out? How do we get to the best conclusion for everybody? Because you're kind of forced to. I agree 100 percent. But it, but I can see where this is an emotional issue on both sides. Somebody feels like they've been cheated out of money. Somebody feels like, I'm sorry, but I can't do anything about it. And I'm feeling bad about it. Do you have to counsel your clients sometimes and calm them down? Yes, <laughs> especially especially there there are various issues that can arise in divorce cases, for example, domestic litigation, um, and what debts uh, are dischargeable, what debts go away, and um, that usually comes down to whether or not a, a debt is a domestic support obligation. So. Um, but but those cases, as you can imagine, get particularly heated and emotional um, as you're as you're litigating those issues that arise in domestic cases. Yeah. From on my end of it, yeah. yes, I know that at the heart of bankruptcy is that you have more debt than you can pay. Can you explain what all debt entails? Um, as as an individual, I probably think of it as if I have credit card debt, if I maybe have a car payment, or um, does a mortgage fall into that? Uh, And then for businesses, what type of debts do they have? Um, What are some of the examples of those debts? Sure. I think you you listed a lot of them. Your your car payment definitely is part of your debt. Credit cards, house payment does fall within debt. It's, It's very broad. I think Brent would agree. It's anything you owe to anybody, any money that you owe counts as your debt. Though it is divided into secured and unsecured debt, and we can get into that if you want to. <laughs> but what are some what are some odd things that people might not think of as the the debt? most yeah the most common ones are of course going to be medical debt, credit mm-hmm. cards, um, student loans, tax obligations, yeah, child support fall you, you know can come into play there. Those are really the most common debts that you'll see uh, that, that I deal with in a consumer mm-hmm. context. Okay. And you mentioned secured versus unsecured. What mm-hmm. What is that differentiate? So you might have debt. Your, your credit card debt is a good example of an unsecured debt. Uh, you owe money to the bank or the credit card company, but if you don't pay it, they can't come after any of your property. 
In contrast, if you have a mortgage, for example, or a lien on your car, that is an example of secured debt because the bank or the dealership or whomever you owe money to can, if you don't pay that money back, say, well, I'm going to foreclose on your house or I'm going to repossess your car. So secured debt is debt that is secured by property. And your creditors have the ability to take that property if you don't pay. So that's the main difference between secured and unsecured debt. If I file an application for bankruptcy, to what degree are, are, are family members involved in this? Because some of my property might be also in my wife's name, uh, or my children might have it. We might have a trust fund set up for the kids, stuff like that. How far can a bankruptcy judgment reach within a family and within a various financial structures that people have these days? Sure. So it depends on the involvement of the family. If you own property jointly with a family member or that uh, you have a family member that's a co-signer on one of your debts, they're going to be involved in the case to a certain degree. When you file a bankruptcy case, an estate is created called the bankruptcy estate, okay? And that's comprised, if you could wrap your arms around everything that's owned by the debtor that files bankruptcy, um, that's what the estate is made up of. So if the debtor has a half interest in some land, his half interest is going to be property of the bankruptcy estate that's, you know, that the family member owns the other half of. So that can definitely create some problems there. Also, if, if for example, you file bankruptcy and a family member is a co-signer on a debt, um, the bankruptcy of the debtor does not discharge the debt for the co-signer, okay, generally. So that can create issues there. But if it's just that there's someone related, that doesn't bring them into the bankruptcy case. It's not going to hurt, for example, your spouse's credit if you file for bankruptcy just because they're related to you. And can anyone file for bankruptcy? Generally, yeah, you you have a lot of debt and choose to do that. There are certain chapters of bankruptcy in which you have to have a certain amount of debt or before you can file for bankruptcy. Um, 13 is one that Correct. has yes. debt limits. And I think subchapter five, um, which is a fairly new um, version of bankruptcy, has a debt limit as well. That's an interesting point you make. There are several chapters in bankruptcy that people file under. And this might turn into a long discussion, but can, <laughs> how many chapters are there and, and how, how, how do they differ? It sounds like this is a very specific type of filing you have to do. And so how, how do you determine which one is the right chapter and who, things like that? Sure. So, you know, in general, there's Chapter 7 and Chapter 13, Chapter 12 for farmers, family farmers or, or commercial fishermen. Mm-hmm. 11, um, which is which an individual can file 11, but typically it is a, a business that is filing an 11. Mm-hmm. 11 also has a subchapter, again, a fairly new development within the bankruptcy code, subchapter 5, which is sort of a, a more efficient, condensed version of an 11 that you can file now. And as I mentioned, that one has a debt limit. And then there are two chapters that I do not run into ever, 9 and 15 Nine covers municipalities and 15 is international bankruptcy 
related. So those two, I don't think either of us ever no, really never. <laughs> run into. But I don't um, know too many cities in Missouri that have ever declared bankruptcy. Right, yeah. right. Run belly up. Is that the other phrase for it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 7, 11, 12, 13. In, in a consumer context, in a Chapter 7, there are income requirements, though. It's, so to get into a Chapter 7, um, there's a test that we refer to as the means test. And the general idea is you're comparing your income for your household to the median income um, of your same household size. If you're below the median income um, on for the income test purpose, uh, you could qualify for a Chapter 7 where you're not necessarily required to pay debts back um, or unsecured debts back. Uh, if you're over the median income, the law is going to try to put you in a Chapter 13 where you're paying a portion of your unsecured debt back. Right. So it's when they come to you, you're the ones who decide which chapter to file under. Basically. That's correct. Yeah. We do. <laughs> so one thing that we've learned when it comes to federal courts um, for immigration law, for instance, we learned that they're actually just immigration courts and how that is structured differently from the general federal courts. Is the same true for bankruptcy? Are there just bankruptcy specific courts or is it just part of the broader federal district courts that we have, for instance, here in Missouri, where we have two. There are bankruptcy courts. Um, they're in, but they are the same districts as our federal courts. So we have an eastern and a western district of Missouri um, bankruptcy court. They're in the same building as the federal court. They're in the federal courthouse, and they've got the other uh, way that Missouri's kind of divided up. There's a northern district up in Hannibal, Missouri, on the eastern side, and then Cape Girardeau is the southeastern division. I think, is it Springfield and St. Joseph and maybe a Carthage in addition to the Southern Division? Yes. Yes. Interesting. And so you always are therefore before kind of the same judges in those circuits. Is that correct? And then I take it that they are very uh, astute and knowledgeable as to bankruptcy since this is all they they handle. I may be biased, but I think bankruptcy judges are some of the smartest people that I've met and interacted with. They, why, why is it? I, they just have a recall of, so let me go back. We have to do a bankruptcy case. We have a bankruptcy code. It's a statute that governs how every case should happen. Um, and these judges, they just have such a recall of the code, of case law, of everything. I just, I've always been very impressed by the bankruptcy judges I've been in front of. I echo that. I think in the whole state of Missouri, we have wonderful bankruptcy judges. And I think the bankruptcy judges have to have knowledge of that, that code. And then also other, you know, knowledge of other areas of the law, whether it's real estate law or, Mm -hmm. you know, secured transactions, all these other areas of law. And I agree that the bankruptcy judges are some of the sharpest, um, lawyers that you'll you'll come yeah. across yeah yeah I, I, i'm just sitting here thinking about law school when you were in law school were there specific courses on bankruptcy and and was that where you decided that was the field you wanted to be in or is this just kind of this is where things went so there are there are courses there were courses when i was in law school i didn't take a single one um <laughs> but there were bankruptcy courses i uh i actually started out as a litigator just a straight litigator and about a year into my practice was approached by the partners in the bankruptcy group at my firm. And they said, we need an associate and you've done a couple of projects for us. Do you want to focus on bankruptcy? And 
when two partners walk into your office and ask you if you want to work for them, you say, yep. <laughs> um, but it's been, it's been a great change for me, a great career move. Again, it's, it's always interesting. Um, I like being in federal court. There were okay, classes available. I didn't take them. I'm practicing bankruptcy anyway. <laughs> I, so when I was in law school, they had a, a class called debtor-creditor law, and bankruptcy's under that umbrella. It wasn't a specific only bankruptcy class, but I did take that class, but it was after I had already kind of become interested in bankruptcy. When I was in law school, after my first year of uh, of law school, I, you're always you're just trying to find a job for the summer, okay? And I sent resumes everywhere I could think of, and I got a call from a bankruptcy judge, and I uh, uh, was an intern that summer in his chambers. Had a lot of very interesting cases going on, and um, I just I just liked it. And then my second summer, I got hired by a bankruptcy firm in uh, in Kansas City that did a, a lot of bankruptcy work and just kind of stayed there and went the way that the door was kind of open at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just as a shout out, both are very involved in the Missouri Bar and our bankruptcy creditor debtors uh, committee and uh, help lead continuing education in this area. Um, is it is this an area of law that is as ever changing as other areas of law? Because um, it sounds like the codes, maybe the federal codes don't change that often, but are there other elements of the law that are, you know, changed with technology or, or new information that comes about? I think one area of, of interest that's kind of a hot topic right now is student loan debt and is, you know, is a, a, a new law going to get passed there? Are they going to amend the current code to do something with student loans? Um, it does change, but I don't see it as as rapid as um, some area, other areas of the law that evolve, you know, constantly. I agree. I think we've had a, a time of some somewhat rapid change recently. There was legislation that was passed and signed just a little bit ago that increased the debt limits again for 13 and for subchapter five. That brought on by, of course, the pandemic that we've been going through and the financial struggles that that's put on a lot of people. But again, yeah, student loan debt is a really good one that the code doesn't really address what you do with it. And for a long time, student loan debt has not been dischargeable, which means when you come out of bankruptcy, you still owe your student loans. Um, and that, I think student loans are a lot of the debt that weighs on people and makes right. them think, well, do I need to declare bankruptcy? Correct. And so hopefully... I think for a lot of debtors, there's hopefully some change. I agreed. Agreed. You made an interesting point, though, that I want to bring up. Has has the pandemic changed the kinds of cases that you folks are being asked to handle? I mean, obviously, society's undergone a great change, whether it's working at home or not working at all or, or whatever, uh, or, or putting people into income situations they had not been in before. But has, has this whole thing changed what kinds of things you're seeing people bring to you? In consumer cases, it's it's the same types of debts that we see, really. And oddly, even after experiencing the past two years and, and the, the COVID pandemic, um, bankruptcy numbers oddly dropped about 50 percent in total 
filing volume. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we're starting to see them pick up a little bit, and I think everybody expects it to yeah. to pick back up. But um, I think the biggest impact throughout the, the pandemic, at least in my practice, has just been that the, the total volume of cases across the country have, have dropped. Right. Which is, again, unexpected. I don't think any of us going into the pandemic who were in this area thought, oh, we're going to see a drop in bankruptcy cases. You ever ask why that is? Other than the fact that you know people are not in business, so they can't get in as much trouble. Well, and I, th- I think one of the reasons is that the government put a lot of things into place to help people during the pandemic. Right. There was the moratorium on evictions. There was um, the PPP loans mm-hmm. that came out. So those things helped people who might otherwise have been forced into bankruptcy during this time stay afloat a little bit. But I think a couple of years in now, those things are going to run out. Those moratoriums aren't in place anymore. The PPP loans aren't being offered or are coming due and you might need to pay them back because you didn't meet the requirements of them or something like that. I think those things are going to start coming to a head and we may see an uptick in bankruptcies now. But I think those are the things that prevented more people from being forced into it over the last several years. I agree. Yeah, the the courthouses seem a lot of them were shut down even for periods of time. So lawsuits kind of came to a a halt temporarily, where things like wage garnishments and and um, other uh, uh, collection action just decreased during the pandemic. So that's a lot of those things are what forces people into our our office to mm-hmm. seek some relief. I was curious when it comes to ever-changing things in our society. Is cryptocurrency a recognized (laughs) currency in bankruptcy court? That's a good question. So uh, you do you would have to list that as an asset you in your okay. schedules if you own cryptocurrency. Um, I have not yet asked to be paid in cryptocurrency. I don't know. I if don't. You I have. don't know that I'd okay. want to be paid in cryptocurrency. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's it's an odd thing because you do have to list it as an asset, but then crypto is so weird because how do you value it? Where do, where are you keeping it? How can you prove that right. someone you are from my side, if you're trying to collect a debt and you think this person has a whole bunch of crypto, they might not have a lot of cash, a lot of other assets, but I know they have a bunch of crypto. How do you collect it? How do you find it? It's connected to a key that is tied to a person with a password. And if they just don't give it to you, mm-hmm. what are you, what are you going to do? So it's, it's definitely a developing area that people are concerned about yeah. um, in terms of collecting. And, 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 the, and the value of it is basically whatever the person mm-hmm. says it is. Yeah. It's, uh, I don't understand how to value it, but. I, <laughs> that might be a neither. CPA question. <laughs> yeah, there you, go. you should have a, you should have a podcast on crypto yes. and uh, yes. how it fits well, into so many things. Crypto is nobody seems to really have a handle on what crypto is, so we can't really discuss it all that well, I don't think. Uh, well, I, I, there's a phrase that comes up in, in bankruptcy that I, I don't quite understand. Maybe you guys can help me understand it, and that's receivership. Businesses go into receivership. Uh, you know, banks and hospitals go into receivership sometimes. What, how does that plug into this? So a receivership is actually a state law mm-hmm. remedy. It's not necessarily connected to bankruptcy. It's an alternative okay. to bankruptcy. Um, and what happens then is you might be put into receivership by one of your creditors. They might file a receivership petition. And what that means is a receiver, either a general receiver or a limited receiver, comes in and controls your company and takes stock of everything that you have and basically goes through 
the process of paying your creditors based on what you have. Um, we do have a code in Missouri that's the receivership code um, that governs that. But again, it's state law, so it's it's just an alternative mm-hmm. to bankruptcy that you can go through. Is it a form of liquidation of a company? It can be. Is that receiver appointed by the court or selected by the company going into receivership? Is it essentially, it sounds like it's a trusted third party. Is- it It is. It's similar to a trustee in bankruptcy. When I've done receivership actions before, um, I've usually represented a creditor who's going in and asking the court to appoint a receiver because the debtor owes money and isn't paying it and their company's doing crazy things. And typically we will go in and say, we ask that you appoint this person to be a receiver. There are people in Missouri who practice and act as receivers often and have sort of that background and that knowledge and know how to do that. So we'll go in and ask that a specific person be appointed. The the reason I ask is because there's a local banker in town who many years ago was the receiver for the Transit Casualty Insurance Company when the when the insurance company failed. And that, that went on for years before that was finally resolved. This is a this can be a very long term thing, can it? It can be. <laughs> and insurance companies are, are one of the I guess organizations that can be prohibited from filing a bankruptcy case too. So that is probably that could be a reason mm-hmm. why they ended up in receivership. That's a good point. Yeah. 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 And they're prohibited because is there any specific like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> any specific reason? The code. Somebody who wrote the code thought it was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese. That means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legalese. Bankrupt. The word has power, so does the legal concept. From the earliest years of our republic, which eliminated the debtor's prison of the old world, we have had bankruptcy in our laws, allowing those whose debts exceed their assets to manage the debt or, in some cases, to eliminate it. We are a people who believe in second chances, but to a point. Our system of debt relief does not cover every kind of debt. Serious economic interests, banks, for example, have pushed the notion that easy debt forgiveness creates a kind of moral hazard. Our laws regarding student loan debt, for instance, which have some provisions for forgiveness, generally do not allow students and former students over their heads or underwater pick your metaphor, to discharge student loan debt in bankruptcy courts. More on that in a moment. Preparing this commentary allowed me the privilege of fact-checking my late mother. I grew up hearing her stories of life on a Midwestern farm, where she grew up during the 1920s and 30s, including the depth of the Great Depression. One memorable story was of the so-called penny auctions. These occurred when a farmer got heavily in debt, and the bank or other mortgage holder foreclosed on equipment and land, and an auction was held to satisfy the debt by paying the creditor the proceeds of the auction sales. The auction would draw a group of muscular and angry fellow farmers who would bid pennies for the auction property so as return it to the farmer who had owned it. Other bidders were too frightened to outbid the penny bidder. As a child, I thought this story was preposterous. As an adult who was fascinated by history, I found that penny auctions were indeed a thing, and though the details may vary, my mother's story was essentially true. Which brings me back to our belief in second chances. Bankruptcy law is orderly. 
it removes much of the implicit or explicit violence from the problem of debt relief. Now to the question of moral hazard. When a person or company borrows money, the lender expects the borrower to pay. So do our society and so do its laws. If society's expectations expressed as laws are not met, then people will get the idea that debts need not be paid. If that happens, so the theory goes, people with money will not lend it and one of the pillars of our capitalist society will collapse. The belief system that I describe is probably responsible for much of the controversy over the proposals to cancel student debt. The social problem is that there is a lot of student loan debt, bigger, I'm told, than the total size of all the credit card debt in the country, and that's a lot. So when politicians propose to cancel student loan debt, the cheers of the debtors may be drowned out by the jeers of those who did not borrow and in many cases did not purchase higher education because of its cost. In a polarized society where the gap between the well-to-do and the not-so-well-to-do is about as wide as it's ever been, what do we do? I have a modest proposal. Though not of the Jonathan Swift satire kind, Swift's being the proposal that involves the poor selling their children to be eaten by the rich. If you're not familiar with this satire, you can look it up. It's considered a classic despite its macabre subject. My modest proposal is to give the student loan debtors the opportunity to pay off their loans through their tax returns by paying a percent or two or three of their adjusted gross incomes each year until the loans are paid off or until they die, whichever comes first. Some loan programs currently have the option of a student borrower paying off loans by doing public service, including teaching and perhaps military service and so forth. The modest proposal that I offer would spare us the reluctant public servants and make room for those willing to work for public salaries because they believe in the mission of public service. What a concept. We should be gentle yet firm with student borrowers. They borrowed the money with the hope of being able to pay it off. Sometimes things just don't work out. Who knew that a loan debt of more than $100,000 would make it difficult to work as a social worker on a public payroll? Whatever. We should free student loan borrowers from the burden of highly monthly costs to free them up to do other things like buy a house or support their children's education or stay in those important but low-paying jobs. We can do that by lowering their payments and extending them out for a long, long time. Someone less math-impaired than I am can do the details. The important thing is that we as a society should find a way for borrowers to repay. And while we're thinking of this subject, perhaps we can reasonably ask why higher education costs so much and suggest, as is the current trend, that people can find rewarding careers with less expensive education and training without four or more years of higher education and a job that entails, at the end, no more than asking, do you want fries with that? This is Mike Wolf seeking common sense for the common good. Legal ease. In your experience, how long does the average bankruptcy case take to resolve from the time they come in and talk to you the first time until this whole thing's concluded one way or another? It'll depend on the type of bankruptcy that's filed. In a Chapter 7 case, uh, the case usually takes about 90 days from when we file the petition with the court and they get their discharge and they're finished. So. Best. 
Yes, it goes very quick. Um, after the case is filed, about 30 days later, they'll have a, a meeting with their bankruptcy trustee, who's kind of like a case administrator and is in charge of liquidating the estate if there's any assets that are not exempt. Uh, but so three, uh, 90 days or, or three months is usually a Chapter 7. Chapter 13, once a case is filed, um, the, uh, the plan usually lasts a period of 36 to 60 months. So you're usually in at least a three-year plan and no longer than five years. There were some COVID extensions where you could go be a few months beyond the five years um, uh, deadline in a Chapter 13. Um, but generally, a Chapter 13 is three to five years. Chapter 11 is probably a better... 11s, there's not... In the code, there is a limit that sets up five years for a Chapter 13. Again, you said there were some extensions. 11 doesn't have the same built-in. You can only be paying your debts for so long. Uh, 11s can go on for quite a while. If you have some debt that you're restructuring, you can have a note that you restructure that then goes for another 30 years. But typically... I don't know if there's a typical answer in a large 11. There is a point where you would ask for the bankruptcy case itself to be closed. Again, an 11 is typically a restructuring where your company is going to want to continue operating. And when you've substantially confirmed and executed your plan, then you're going to ask the court to close your case and just continue operating from there. But depending on the company, depending on your debts, and how you structure your Chapter 11 plan, that's going to determine how long a Chapter 11 case lasts. Why why do people typically file for bankruptcy? And I'd love to hear from both the the personal and the business side of it, Um, because we're talking about the process now, and it sounds like once you decide to do this, it gets underway very quickly and can be resolved somewhat quickly, even if you're long-term paying back that debt. So why are people deciding to file for bankruptcy? What are some of those core causes? I usually see consumers considering bankruptcy because of one of three major life events. It's either a lot of medical debt, it's a job loss or loss of income, or divorce. Those are the big three that I tend to see in my practice. And they're worried about protecting their home and their ability to keep their paycheck to provide for their family because one of those events or a combination of several of them has happened and it's making it difficult for them to provide for their family. And from the from the business side, I see large debts coming due that you can't pay and just an inability to operate. So on sort of the, especially the smaller business side, you say it's a, a, a mom and pop shop that can't find employees or can't pay employees and they're just unable to operate anymore. So those are, I think, on the business side what I'd say. I had had written down in my notes here, divorce, question mark, and you mentioned divorce. How how often does that, is that a factor? Very frequently. One party wanting to protect property from the other, is that what it is or what? No, uh, usually what we see is, and I saw a statistic recently that 70% of divorces end up with at least one party having to file for bankruptcy. Wow. I think the problem created by a divorce is that, you know, if you have a couple and you have, um, let's say you have two children, and then once you split up, both parties are still going to have close to the same expenses that they had as a family. They still are going to have to 
pay rent or a house payment, pay for a household, you know, running kids everywhere, but now they're only down to half the income. So it just really can put a squeeze on. I don't see bankruptcy as not as often like a like a strategy or a tactic paired with the divorce. Sometimes sometimes it can be, but usually divorce is just something that caused the strain um, that, the, you know, that they're trying to seek relief from. Now, did both file for bankruptcy in a case like that or, or just one? If they, if they split up their property and each owes equally, but they have half the income, do they both file for bankruptcy or they, just one? They could. If one files, the other one isn't prohibited from filing. So it would just depend on, you know, the individual circumstances of uh, the clients after the divorce. So, yeah, it just it kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. So you're not the divorce lawyers, you're the financial lawyers here. That's right. So going back to your question, there's a lot of counseling that goes oh, into these scenarios, yeah, I'm yes. sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, that, that, that also leads me to another point because I, I see all these commercials on television these days for people who have credit card debt. And there's credit card counseling services out there that says, we'll combine your debt and then help you get along the way. To what degree are you in the same kind of business as these folks are? Well, the, the nice part about the bankruptcy process is that, for example, the commercials you see that don't file bankruptcy, you can settle your debts for pennies on the dollar, you know? In the bankruptcy context, we have laws in place so you know what you get at the end of the case. With these debt settlement programs, there's no guarantee that these creditors are going to accept the offer. So, what we see in our practice a lot are clients that come in and they've been making payments to a debt settlement program for a year, two years, and they think everything's handled. And then they get served with a summons, a lawsuit. One of the creditors in the debt settlement program is suing them and trying to get a judgment to, to garnish wages. So there's no guarantee in those programs that it's going to work. And there's other drawbacks to doing that too. If you if you go that route, any debt that is negotiated down, you will incur an income tax liability there. Where in a bankruptcy case, you don't. But it is kind of similar, uh, I guess, a Chapter 13. Um, but the the Chapter 13 process is more based on your ability to pay what you're paying back your what you're able to pay. Whereas those debt settlements and and I don't do the debt settlements outside of bankruptcy, but I believe they're kind of just shooting for a certain percentage off. I, I don't run into those often yeah. at all. Yeah, when when you when you have to work out the debts that these folks bring to you, is there? Well, maybe this is maybe a little bit of a ticklish question, but is there kind of a an industry average for how much of the dollar that somebody owes actually is paid to a creditor through bankruptcy? I feel in so, it depends answer. It, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. I hate to sound like a lawyer, yeah. but it depends. We're yeah. used to right. that. We get it at least yeah. once every yeah. episode. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think part of this question goes back to is your debt secured or unsecured? Mm -hmm. um, in a bankruptcy, a creditor whose debt is secured is entitled to the value of their collateral. So mm -hmm. if you owe someone $100,000 and it's secured by a car that's worth 40, they have to give you 40, the value of your collateral. And creditors like to be fully secured, obviously. So if they if you owe them $100,000, they like collateral that's worth $100,000. They prefer mm -hmm. that. But unsecured debt, 
that's that's where what you're what you're paid out this percentage you're talking about that's mm-hmm. where it can vary depending on again ability to pay agreements that you reach with your creditors and in 11 you're really negotiating creditors and a debtor are really negotiating together like okay what agreement can we reach so that your plan is what we call feasible so that your plan will work out over the course of these several years and we will get paid what we're agreeing to creditors actually have a lot of power in a chapter 11 to say this is the treatment i want how do we make it happen so I think that that distinction between the two types of debt mm-hmm. um, helps answer that. And then the unsecured is where it can it can vary quite a bit what percentage you get back. Chapter 11 context, much more negotiation, much yes. more, um, you know, intense negotiation there. And a chapter 13 on the consumer side, it's really it's really a two part test. The amount that unsecured creditors are going to receive, of course, the secured creditors, as you mentioned, get the value of their collateral. But the unsecured creditors will get paid based on the debtor's income, okay, their ability to pay. And then the other part of the test is they have to be paid. The unsecured creditors have to get at least what they would have received if they had done a hypothetical Chapter 7 and their non-exempt property was sold. Okay, so they have to pay them at least that, but they will give them up to a five-year period to pay that off. So it makes it puts the creditor in a in a position as good as they would be if they were in a chapter seven and allows the debtor time to pay that off. I would love for each of you to walk through um, just kind of like a hypothetical scenario of what it's like when you file as an individual or file as a company. What are some of the things that you're going to be asked to provide? Are you going to have to face your creditors in court or is it more of just an agreement that you're presenting to the judge and the judge approves. Just some of those those core components to most cases so that people can visualize or, or get a better understanding of what this actually looks like in reality. Do you want to start with consumer or should I start with the big sort of 11 business? Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so if you're a business and you're deciding to file a bankruptcy petition, you it, it takes a while to prepare. Honestly, you're working on it for quite a while before you actually file the petition with the court. You're going to have to provide every everything that relates to your income, everything that relates to your business. So your employees, your insurance, your anything that relates to your overhead, any loans that you have, everything that affects your income. So your customers, uh, vendors that you pay. Let's see what else. There are many, many things. <laughs> but essentially what I'm getting is you have to you have to provide information on every aspect of your business. Because what you're asking the court to do is then allow you to restructure almost every aspect of your business to alleviate and restructure your debt. In every chapter, you have the petition itself, which is a form from the bankruptcy court, and you lay out a summary of your assets and liabilities. And it's it's very specific in how you, you fill out this form. But then um, in a large chapter 11, we have what are called first day motions that we will go before the court and say, we would like to keep paying our employees. Because once you file for bankruptcy, as Brent mentioned, all of your property is now part of the bankruptcy estate. It doesn't, it's not the debtor's property anymore. It's the estate's property. So you go to the court and say, we want to keep paying our employees. We want to keep paying our vendors. We want to keep using our money to do this. We want to, sometimes you have to ask to get more debt to fund your bankruptcy. This is a very long and complicated answer of saying you have to provide all of the information about everything. And it's a process. 
Is the understanding that you've got to keep the business running? So. Typically in an 11, yes, a company is wanting to restructure and keep keep operating. That's that's the goal of a reorganization in bankruptcy. And so that's why you, you really gather everything and say, here's what I need to keep going. Please let me do this, bankruptcy court. <laughs> <laughs> so in a consumer or an individual context, um, yeah, we would need from individuals pay stubs for usually at least the last seven months for the income test we have to run them through. We need tax returns for the past several years and just a list of all of their assets, um, car titles, you know, deeds to real estate, all of those things. And filing a petition in an individual case is not as intense of a process as a corporate chapter 11 or, or one for a business entity. But it is it is very detailed and we file a petition and the other documents are going to detail all of the debtors assets all of their liabilities their income their expenses and then there's a document called a statement of financial affairs that goes into detail about just past transactions and their general financial situation and these documents they're very important you know the policy of the bankruptcy code is to give an honest but unfortunate debtor, a fresh start, right? But the debtor's obligations there are to fill out schedules that are truthful and accurate and complete. So these documents are very, very important and getting accurate information down on papers is a very important part of the process. Then when we file the case, the debtor gets the court protection and then the process from there is uh, a little bit different depending on the chapter that they file. Um, in, a, in a consumer case, about 30 days later, generally they attend what's called a 341 meeting of creditors where your bankruptcy trustee is gonna ask you questions under oath and you have to be honest and answer truthfully uh, the questions and creditors can show up and ask you questions about your assets as well. It's pretty rare we get a creditor that shows up, um, but it, it is a they can show up and ask questions um, in a Chapter Seven case. So, so the debtors have to appear at a at a meeting of creditors about thirty days after both a seven, a Chapter Seven and Chapter Thirteen are filed. In a Chapter Seven, about six months or sixty days after that meeting, they get a discharge and they're just done. They get a fresh start and they can move on. In a Chapter 13, um, they're making payments. After they file their first payment, the statute provides the due date. It's 30 days after their, their uh, petition is filed, and they make payments for a three- to five-year period. At the end of that period, all the dischargeable debts go away, and, and then they get to move on. I will just echo one thing that Brent said. These, not only do you answer questions under oath at this 341 meeting, but your, your documents are filed under penalty of perjury in a bankruptcy. And if there is something that you don't list on your schedules, a debt that you don't list, that will not be discharged at the end of your bankruptcy. So it's so important to be thorough and honest and upfront in this process if you want the full benefit of a bankruptcy discharge. And, and the other hammer out there too is that if you do intentionally omit an asset or you lie in your paperwork, that's considered a, a federal crime. And mm -hmm. oh, that, wow. yes, those crimes are, are investigated by the FBI. They get prosecuted. We've probably seen celebrities on TV that have mm -hmm. gone to jail for 
being less than truthful in bankruptcy schedules. So um, it is it's important to take them seriously. So you really need to be prepared to pull back the curtain yes. on every aspect of your business or personal financial life, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Does, is bankruptcy ever a refuge for somebody who uh, feels like they're, they're paying, they, they can't afford to pay their income taxes or their taxes? Do they ever come in and talk to you about not being able to, falling behind in their taxes, and now all of a sudden the IRS is on the door, and can, I, I can declare bankruptcy, can I, and get protected? So in a consumer context, so and generally in the bankruptcy code, generally taxes are not dischargeable. There are some advantages, for example, if you do a Chapter 13 and let's say, for example, the IRS starts garnishing your wages and they're mm -hmm. taking a huge chunk out of your paycheck, um, we can file a Chapter 13 for a debtor and usually pay those taxes off and spread the time out that we're paying them off so that it's not an, you know, an impossible payment to make or, or so that the debtor can still meet their, their living expenses and pay the IRS. Now, in some circumstances, we can discharge tax liabilities if they're just generally if they're really old, if, the, if it's been more than three years from when they were last due to be filed and the tax return was filed correctly and on time and we have to check, you know, quite a few boxes there. But sometimes we can get out of um, an IRS tax liability, discharge a debt, um, but it's not not generally. Uh, and some taxes, for example, sales taxes, uh, payroll taxes, and I'm sure Camber de deals with in Chapter 11, those are never dischargeable. So, yeah, it's it's not a not easy to to escape the irs or the state how about a lawsuit if some if i'm facing a lawsuit can i can i file chapter 11 or a, a bankruptcy procedure and uh, either get out from under a judgment or somehow ease my way into having to pay that how does that work sure so one of the one of the things that i make sure that my creditor clients are so so aware of in a bankruptcy context is something called the automatic stay as soon as a bankruptcy is filed, any collection attempts against that debtor have to stop immediately, whether you know about the bankruptcy or not. Uh, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> so if you have filed a lawsuit against a debtor and they file for bankruptcy, that lawsuit stops in its tracks. If you have started, if you already have a judgment, for example, and you've started garnishing wages, uh, that garnishment stops immediately. Banks shouldn't even call the borrower and say, you still owe me this much money because that is an attempt to collect a debt. I tell my bank clients if a, someone has filed for bankruptcy and they have automatic payments in place, turn it off. We can then often go back to them and through their counsel, we might turn those back on because if your payment is related to your house, for example, you might want to keep that current. But just to avoid any violation of what's called this automatic stay, all collection just has to stop immediately, which is sort of this breath of relief for the debtor, right? That's the point of mm -hmm. filing the bankruptcy. But creditors really need to be on top of that. So a judgment or a lawsuit might actually be the instigating factor for someone to file bankruptcy. If suddenly they're hit with this lawsuit for a large amount of money that they know they can't pay, uh, they might file it to stop that lawsuit. If you already have a judgment against you, uh, again, this will stop collection, but the judgment will exist. And 
depending on whether that judgment has been recorded as a lien in Missouri, it'll be treated as either a secured or an unsecured debt in your bankruptcy case. So this just gives people time to figure out where they're going to go. Exactly. How to do this. I know that you uh, both have alluded to suits that have potentially have been filed against someone who's seeking to file for bankruptcy, trying to get the money that they're owed. What remedies do creditors have if there has been, you know, either a stop payment, uh, either before or after the bankruptcy proceeding has begun? If I'm if I'm a small business and I'm trying to collect from, you know, a vendor that owes me money, or I guess it wouldn't be a vendor, but <laughs> a consumer that <laughs> right. owes me money. How do I go about that? So there is a very specific process in bankruptcy that for you to collect what you are owed or attempt to collect what you're owed. It's called the claim process. Um, and in any of these cases, except a no asset seven. In a no asset seven, you don't ever file a claim because there are no assets for anyone to collect. But there's a process with a time set in place by the code or the court that says by this certain date, you have to file with the court a proof of claim. And again, it's a form and you attach to it all of your supporting documentation saying this is what I'm owed. This proves that I am a secured claimant if your debt is secured. Uh, and you have to provide all that information to the court, file it and say, I am owed this money. And then it's on record. And that's what's used to determine through the plan who gets paid what. So that is that is the way to collect your debt through a bankruptcy is to file a proof of claim. And if you don't buy the bar date, then you are out of luck in most cases. And so I have to do that even if my company has filed a lien against someone prior to that or uh, filed a suit trying to collect. Exactly. Those yes. previous matters no longer have any consequence. They have consequence. Okay. They still matter. So if you have if you have a lien against somebody, a judgment lien or anything else, that still matters, but you have to bring it before the court in the proof of claim context. You have to say to the court, I have this lien that exists um, and I've had, and now I want it to be paid out through the bankruptcy. Do you see a kind of like a threshold at where the amount a creditor is owed is not worth the amount of expense to try to get that debt that is owed back? Yes, that can definitely be a consideration <laughs> for a creditor. Um, sometimes the bankruptcy process, especially where a debtor might want to dispute what you say you are owed and say, no, no, I've paid this off or no, I owe you less or no, your collateral is not worth that much. Sometimes the creditor might say, you know what, I'm going to write this off. I'm done. If it is a, a small amount, um, filing a proof of claim is not typically a very expensive thing. So you can still get your claim before the court. But again, if it turns into sort of this adversarial proceeding that we talked about earlier, that can get expensive. So a creditor might just say, you know what, <laughs> I'm not going to fight this. It's not worth it. Then again, you might have a creditor who, as we talked about before, there's an emotional side to this, a creditor who feels like they're being cheated, a creditor who feels like they are owed this money and they're not going to back down and they might spend 20000 to get five. So it, it depends. But there is definitely that consideration from the creditor side of what am I spending and what am I getting? 
Does that become then a tax-deductible business expense? Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> More and, on principle. <laughs> and, and, and that can come into play on the debtor's side, too. Mm-hmm. If there's an adversary filed against the debtor, um, you know, and, and we know it's going to cost a certain amount of money to defend it. That could drive uh, some sort of a settlement from mm-hmm. our end as well. You know, it's right, say, a, okay, your collateral is fine. It's worth this much. Right. Fine. Ex- we'll handle it. <laughs> exactly. We don't, yeah, we don't, especially, you know, we're especially cognizant of that. We don't want to spend, you know, $5,000 litigating over a $500 difference mm-hmm. in value. This is going to be kind of a, a touchy personal thing maybe. And, and uh, But I see you guys talking about people who are having trouble paying their debts. And I can see why some folks would have to weigh very carefully, how do I do this? Because I don't want to spend all this money on a lawyer. Uh, so, so from, from your standpoint, how do you decide how much, how much somebody needs to pay to help you get them out of their financial trouble? Sure. Is, is, that, uh, is that an ethical thing? Uh, what is it? Sure. I, th- I think we're always trying to help our client. And we're trying to do that as efficiently as we can while at the same time helping them in the best way that we can. So our fees are kind of always just based off the amount of time that's going to be involved in the case from our end. We try to keep them as low as we can while having happy clients and, Mm -hmm. and, and representing them well. I will say that in a, you know, in a typical consumer case, we're talking maybe 1500 to $2,000 for a case. And if we're getting rid of 50, 60, you know, several hundred thousand dollars of, of debt, it still makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And, and you're much better off getting the professional advice than trying to take a swing at it yourself. There, it, most of the cases, the majority of cases that file without a lawyer, unfortunately get dismissed, you know, and, and, then you're kind of back to the starting line. But no, it is something that we're conscious of um, when we're we're quoting fees for our representation, mm-hmm. especially in the consumer context, because it's somebody that doesn't have a lot of money, right? But we usually can put them in such a better position going forward to where it's, it's still really a great value. Well, expertise has a cost. Sure. Right. Of some kind. So you can't just you guys aren't legal aid. No. <laughs> I was also thinking of the the peace of mind that would come if if you're constantly getting calls from collections or having suits filed against you and then to know that you go to a professional in this instance and once you file you get that like kind of grace period like you said like everything stops all your payments stop and you actually get a chance to reset and hopefully have a second chance at being financially successful, um, managing your finances. Uh, leading into that question, I was curious, do we do you see a lot of people who file for bankruptcy multiple times? Or is this uh, more often or not kind of that once in a lifetime experience? In, in my office, um, it's it's definitely not the norm to have a multiple case filer. Um, we do we see it? Yes, you know there are certain waiting periods that you have to follow that are um, listed in the code. For example, if you do a Chapter Seven, you can't file another Chapter Seven for eight years. Okay, um, so uh, 
there are waiting periods. Uh, usually it's a one and done case. The vast majority are, you know, you do see a few repeat filers, um, but it, it's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. On the, yeah. on the business side, I can't say that I've seen many repeat filers for, for debtors. Um, generally they try to make it through their plan. And if it's a feasible, well thought out plan, they continue functioning on the other side. That's the goal. Is there financial literacy education that is required for those who go through bankruptcy to take? I know that in Missouri, I think a decade or so ago, they adopted a half credit. Like before you graduate high school, you have to have a half credit of financial literacy. Yeah. I was just curious if you go through this process, is that something that's not just suggested, but required? Yes. On the consumer side. Yes. yes. <laughs> so individuals have to complete a class within the 180 day period. So within the six months prior to filing their bankruptcy, they have to do a credit counseling class. They get a certificate that they've completed that. And we have to file that with the court with their bankruptcy petition. And then there's a second follow up class to that in both a, a chapter seven for individuals and a chapter 13 called a debtor education class. And we have to file another certificate with the court in order to receive their discharge. So if they fail to complete the second class, they don't get a discharge at the end. So it is very much a requirement of bankruptcy and part of the process. That was changed in 2005 with, there was a big change in the law we refer to as BAP-CEPA. Um, back in 2005 and that's when that requirement was implemented is there is there a need is there a requirement that creditors receive an advance notice that someone is going to file for bankruptcy no you just all of a sudden wake up some morning and find out yep and you yeah. will typically once they file you will get a notice that yeah. they've filed yeah. bankruptcy yeah. but no there's no requirement for advance yeah. notice i just have a couple of other things i want to ask you about before we wrap this up, and I, I don't want to preclude you from having any okay. questions. But, uh, I, look, uh, I look around at this hot, dry weather we're having right now, and uh, at not only here in Missouri, but throughout the country in many places, and I, I, I realize that agriculture is going to be struggling. And, and agriculture is a gamble every year where farmers borrow money to put in a crop, and if the weather turns bad, that's, that's uh, too bad for them. Do you get very many farm bankruptcy issues coming before you. And is, is that different from any other form of business? So I don't have farm debtors coming to me. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I have a client, a bank client, for example, who might be owed money mm -hmm. by a farmer. I will say, though, that for farmers, there is a specific chapter of the code that gives you your own set of rules for relief. It's called a Chapter 12 mm -hmm. bankruptcy, and it's for uh, farmers and family fishermen. And it is almost a hybrid between an 11 and a 13 mm -hmm. in that you still have a set number of years during which you have to make payments. But it, it, it does give you sort of your own structured reorganization as a farmer. I'm not entirely familiar with all of the different aspects of that, but I do know that it exists and is helpful to farmers. I have not filed a chapter 12 bankruptcy for a farmer, but it is similar to 13. In a chapter 12, it's really for a family farmer or or fisherman, as Camber said, with regular annual income. So it does allow the farmer to make one annual payment while they're trying to 
reorganize and, and keep everything going versus in a chapter 13, they have to make chapter 13s are for individuals that have regular income. They're required to make a monthly payment. Okay. So um, the chapter 12 will let farmers make an annual payment. I do believe that there are some other advantages in a chapter 12 with regard to tax debt that are, are better in a chapter 12 versus the other uh, chapters of mm -hmm. bankruptcy. But I, I, to really get into detail yeah. on those, I wouldn't be wouldn't be qualified. You almost have to have a specialist in agriculture bankruptcy, don't you? But it does take into account the fact that usually you are getting income when you harvest. Yeah, right. Which is again different from that yeah. thirteen. I know we've been talking about crops in this mm -hmm. specific scenario, but I suspect that Chapter Twelve would also apply to those who have livestock in the rancher category who maybe because I know like right now. The hay fields are not coming out, so the cost of feeding is is more expensive. But just curious if that's. I believe I believe if your if your primary income comes from farm income okay. that you could be a debtor under Chapter Twelve. But I'm I'm kind of shooting from the hip on This is one of those things where they need to talk to a specialist. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 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 My, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was how long how long does a bankruptcy affect your credit score? So in a consumer context, my, my clients are particularly worried about that. Chapter 7 stays on your credit for 10 years. Chapter 13 is on your credit for a seven-year period. Now, people will hear that. 10 years, I'm going to be, you know, destroyed. I'm not going to be able to, to get any credit. Now, mm -hmm. that is not true. I mean, we've even seen clients, believe it or not, get up to, you know, above average credit scores within a year of filing a bankruptcy. We've seen clients purchase real estate within two years. So you can get rebuilt pretty quick, but it is on your credit for those specific times. We're talking about an hour here about this subject. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that uh, you guys would like to emphasize for folks when they get their backs against the wall and have to find some legal help on this? The one thing that I would say and that I've thought about over several years of being a bankruptcy attorney, and I think this applies equally to debtors and creditors, is I've seen a lot of people think that filing bankruptcy is some sort of individual moral failing. Mm -hmm. um, not just that your finances have gone bust, but that somehow that makes you a failure of a person. Mm -hmm. And I just really want to emphasize that, that, that that's not the case. Bankruptcy is a tool that has been around for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And is meant to, I think Brent mentioned it earlier, just to really give the honest, well-meaning debtor a way forward. Um, and I think creditors need to come into it thinking, you know, this is this gives me some finality. This gives me some ability to collect what I'm what I'm owed, and and gives everyone sort of a fresh a fresh start. So I think I've run into several individuals over the course of my career that think I would never file for bankruptcy. Um, but if you're in a situation where it's a tool that you need to use, do it. And we talked a lot about um, medical debts, divorce, those types of things driving someone's need to consider bankruptcy. But there are other things out there too. Home foreclosures, you, mm -hmm. can, you can stop. Vehicle repossessions, wage garnishments, I think Cambridge talked about that. Um, so, it, you know, any it, it can be a, a tool, as we've discussed, to 
um, stop those collection actions and just help you help someone get a fresh start and move on. Um, and and like Camber was saying, pay the creditor what what is uh, is going to be going to them, and then just move on and and gives individuals the ability to focus on the future and put it behind them. Your job is to take the scare out of a scary situation. Yes. For both sides. So bottom line, if you're not doing okay financially, ask for help. I think so. I think (laughs) you'll find you're on the consumer side, especially you're going to find free consultations available to be able to sit down and discuss options. Yes. If, especially if you're, you know, making decisions like, do I pay this, you know, am I going to pay my rent or I'm going to, going to buy groceries or we've even seen the uh, unfortunate example of do I pay for my medicine or do I pay for this other bill if you're to that point please seek help yes well we want to thank you guys for being with us on this edition of is it legal Two? it's a special production of the Missouri bar and we want to thank Camber Jones and Brent Westbrook for being our guests today to explain this fascinating topic thank you thank you Before we go, this program series is focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. Bankruptcy is a specific example of a broader problem that led to the creation of the Constitution. It comes as a great surprise to many to learn that our first attempt to govern ourselves, the Articles of Confederation, was such a spectacular failure. After all, we had just achieved one of the most monumental victories in history by defeating the British and gaining our independence. Among the leaders of our country were some of the most impressive individuals who ever drew breath. It should have been the best of times. Instead, it was the worst. Under the Articles of Confederation, We gave in to human nature. After suffering under the yoke of oppression for so long, it was only natural for states to seek the maximum amount of power and freedom that could be grabbed. When we had been colonies, we had almost no power. Thus, when we became free states in this new United States of America, we sought to hold on to as much power as we could. Why would the states give up precious pieces of their power to a federal government? The states wanted to do it all, develop their own economic policies, print their own money, come up with their own rules about bankruptcy. The problem was that this refusal to see the need for national policies of uniform application made it impossible for us to succeed economically as a nation. As a result, Nobody thrived. Businessmen, farmers, merchants, laborers, all suffered. Our human instinct to grab the biggest piece of the pie resulted in the pie falling to the ground and being trampled. When we gathered in Philadelphia for the Constitutional Convention, we recognized the need to do it differently. We recognized the need for a constitution in which states would yield considerable power to a Congress that would be able to reconcile competing interests and pursue a national interest. The power to regulate interstate commerce and the authority to coin and regulate currency 
were two of the most important powers given by the new Constitution to Congress in order to ensure a healthy national economy. Very similar was the power over bankruptcy. Under the Articles of Confederation, with each state controlling the rules of bankruptcy, chaos prevailed. Without a set of uniform rules, there was no predictability. There was no certainty. In the absence of predictability and certainty, economic conditions suffer. As James Madison observed in Federalist Number 42, the power of establishing uniform laws of bankruptcy is so intimately connected with the regulation of commerce and will prevent so many frauds where the parties or their property may lie or be removed into different states that the expediency of it seems not likely to be drawn into question. Because of the necessity of a uniform rule, there was little debate or rancor over the inclusion in Article 1, Section 8 of the following language. Congress shall have the power to establish uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. Sometimes our mistakes cost us dearly, and there is no opportunity to correct them. When the framers of the Constitution were given the second chance, to empower the federal government to create rules that protected a national economy, they took advantage of it. Bankruptcy was an example of this, and we are the beneficiaries of that choice. There are some resources you might want to check out about bankruptcy. Just go to Missouri Lawyers Help. .org. You can find an array of other information on various legal topics at that same site. The site provides information that will help you better understand the law, because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. Again, that's MissouriLawyersHelp.org. Nothing further. You've been listening to Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Thanks for being with us. Opinions and positions stated by guests and presenters in the Is It Legal 2 podcast are those of the guests and presenters and not necessarily those of the Missouri Bar. This program is intended as information for lawyers and citizens of Missouri in conjunction with other research they deem necessary and the exercise of their independent judgment.